0: Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back chaps. Chris, you mentioned you've got a £20 NAS. I'm assuming that's not £20 in weight and it's £20 sterling. How did you get a NAS for that price? That doesn't sound right to me.
1: Yeah, so quite a while ago, every time... I mentioned anything to do with my NAS in inverted commas. Gary would keep going, just get a Synology. Just just buy a Synology, it's easier. So I was like, okay, the NAS I used to have was a fourth gen i3. It was fine, but getting old, noisy, and dusty. So I thought, okay, maybe Gary's right. It's time to buy a Synology. This hardware's old. It might make my life a bit easier. They look nice, they look small, and the rest of it. I only run a two drive mirror. Like, it's just for my personal files. It's not, I don't run like a media server or anything. So I started looking at the Synologies, and the cheapest ones they do are these quad core ARM ones with a J on the end.
2: Don't buy those.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. They're still, they're 175 quid without drives. And yeah, I started looking at feedback, and people were like, no, pointless. They only have half a gig of soldered RAM. They don't support Docker officially on the, disk station operating system that the Synology's run, don't buy it, buy a Plus. So I was like, okay, how much is the Plus? The Plus is 300 quid without drives, which gives you a Celeron J, Docker support, two gigs of soldered RAM, and an extra SODIM slot like a laptop. But 300 quid, I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure I want to spend that. So I started looking up machines on eBay that have the same Celeron J, and I found quite a lot of them for about 100 quid mostly cheapo sort of machines you buy in curries running windows and people were selling them probably because they're quite slow they only have four gigs of ram and only like spinning rust a single one terabyte spinning rust drive which is not going to be fun on windows at all but then i saw someone listing one of these with a j4105 four gigs of ram one terabyte of rust for 25 quid and the description said oh it's a." Uh, blue screening when i boot and uh it's broken so i'm selling it cheap in fact the j4105 is a quad core version of what's in the synology i was looking at for 300 quid and all of these are like they're basically soc so it's 10 watt tdp which is presumably why synology sort of earmarked them so it's, it's quiet doesn't use much electricity the next morning i woke up and the seller had done that thing where he'd blanket bombed anyone who'd looked at it with 10 percent off so it was 2250 now plus shipping. I was pretty sure that it wasn't actually broken. It was just a corrupted installation. So I put the money down and I did a bit of research and I noticed that there's no PSU inside because it's essentially like a laptop processor. The power supply is like a laptop brick that you plug in with the yellow rectangle you get on older Lenovo laptops. But the case is probably used for a lot of different machines, some of which have these PSUs. So there's a huge void under the motherboard with nothing there. And when I got it, it was fine. It actually had a J5005, which is the same thing as a 4105, with slightly better graphics. So I tested all the hardware, and uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a go. The problem is, is that I then had to fit it all in. The case only has one 3.5-inch drive bay, But the reason I bought it is because there was a void where the power supply was meant to be. So I measured it up and I found an old Supermicro tray for a three and a half inch drive. There was eight quid that I put the second drive in. And then I used those uh, 3M command strips (laughs) to stick it in the void. Mm. They hold loads of weight. Like the, the large size ones hold a whole picture up on the wall. Like it's fine. And it's always laying horizontal where it is. Oh, okay. The other three and a half inch drive goes in the de facto bay. The motherboard only has two SATA ports and it has a DVD drive in which I just disconnected. And then I split the SATA power for the main drive in half and then connected up some SATA cables. So there we go. My ZFS mirror is ready. The only problem is now, where do I put the operating system? Because there's no more SATA ports. My old machine had three. Some of these cheaper NASs that you can buy, run the OS on a USB drive, which is on an internal header, or you can just hang a USB drive off the machine. And I was like, "Mm, I don't really fancy that either.
0: Yeah, that's what I did originally with mine. But then eventually, what I did was I just got a cheap PCIe card that had two SATA ports on it or three SATA ports on it. And I was able to boot from that. So I plugged the SSD into
1: that and uh, never looked back. Well, it's funny you should say that because that's exactly what I did. So the motherboard has two PCIe slots, uh, one advertised as 16 and one advertised as one lane. PCIe 2, uh, low profile because it's a small form factor case. So I just bought one of those. As you said, it's it just transfers the lanes. I bought an NVMe one, but it's not got a controller or much of a chipset on it. it. Literally, it's like those Adapters you have for a micro SD card that turns them into full-size SD cards. Mm. So it's just transferring the pin out. It was only twelve quid, and uh, I also got a twenty quid SSD, which was second hand. But the seller had put all of the statistics. It had like been powered on three times in some laptop, and then had no terabytes written. So I put that all in the machine. But then, of course, it doesn't boot from that directly. So. <laughs> I did have to put just the EFI partition on something that booted from USB. So I put it on a one gigabyte micro SD card in a USB adapter. And uh, I point the machine at that, and then it just chain loads to the root partition, which is on the NVMe drive. And that works fine. The machine's headless. Every time I reboot it, the BIOS is set to look for that EFI partition and then boot, you know, mount the root partition and boot it. I feel cheated
0: here, Chris. You said this was a £20 NAS, but it's like 22 50 to start with, and then, oh, I just had to buy this, I just had to buy that. It sounds like it was more like 100 quid by the time you'd bought all the bits you needed.
1: Well, I'll come to that. <laughs> then when I booted the machine, I did a speed test on the SSD, and it was only hitting 500 megabytes a second, which felt a bit weird because... You know, that's the maximum speed of a SATA 3 SSD. The PCIe slot was supposed to be 16 lanes, and the adapter I bought was supposed to be PCIe 4 with 4 lanes. Now, the PCIe slots are 2.0, so that has a maximum speed of 500 megabytes per second per lane per direction. And then I would have looked at the Intel Arc for the J5005, which is, you know, the page that has whether it supports AESNI, the instruction sets, what year it came out, the Bible for Intel CPUs, and I noticed that the J5005 only has a maximum of six PCIe lanes total and has no option to connect to an external chipset like you would on a normal CPU. So I had six PCIe lanes for everything. We're talking about like the network card that's on the machine, anything that's on that is all going through what's essentially a system on chip. So I'd basically run out of PCIe lanes. So the SSD could do 2000 megabytes a second read, 1500 megabytes a second write, but it's just going to cap out at a single lane. But to be honest, the old NAS was running a SATA SSD for the OS, and that's fine now there's another thing so yeah the 20 pounds is being stretched it came with four gigs of ram mm-hmm. so i replaced that with an eight gigabyte so dim which i got for 18 quid but i would have had to do that on a synology because bear in mind the synology comes with two gigs of soldered ram and an empty dim slot uh, so if you want extra extra ram which i think is a piss take for 300 quid like they could at least give you and, and what what the arc says is that this cpu only supports Eight gigs of RAM maximum.
0: Yeah, it lies though. I've done it.
1: Yeah, well, this is the thing. So, this same uh, CPU is in some nux and I found people putting sixteen gigabytes SO dims in. But I put eight gigs in because it was cheap, and it was definitely advertised to work. So, coming back to Joe's budgetary concerns, <laughs> <laughs> I spent twenty two fifty on the machine. I spent eighteen quid on the RAM, eight quid on the cage, twelve quid on the adapter, and twenty two quid. On the SSD. Now, bearing in mind the Synology, I think what happens is, I'm wondering if Dalton knows this, they bootstrap the operating system and then install it on the disks you put in the drive base. Is that right?
3: Yes, they do. And I got hit by this this week, in fact. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The OS sits on a
2: partition on the data disks, it's mirrored between all of them. Yeah. Okay.
1: So I spent £82.50 actually, but what I've got is a box with a quad-core version of the dual-core CPU, which is in the 300-quid Synology, 256 gigs of SSD storage, and the freedom to run any operating system I like. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Servermania.
0: Go to servermania.com slash LAD to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. Servermania has over two decades of experience building high-performance infrastructure hosting platforms for businesses globally. They offer a wide range of fully customizable dedicated cloud, co location, and IP transit services and free initial consultations. Servermania offers a 100% uptime SLA with some of the best bandwidth pricing in North America on network speeds of up to 20 gigabits per second in nine locations worldwide. With Servermania, every customer receives a dedicated account manager, free 24 7 live chat and support with one of the quickest response times in the industry. So go to servermania.com slash L-A-D to find out why my friend Alan Jude has been a Server Mania customer for over five years. Use the promo code LinuxAfterDark to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. That's servermania.com slash L-A-D and promo code LinuxAfterDark. Chris and Gary, you have both got young children, gen alpha kids, or maybe even younger, I don't know, all that stuff's arbitrary. Never mind, you've got young (laughs) kids now. (laughs) And it got me thinking the other day, what is the world going to be like by the time they're kind of your age? So let's just say in the 2050s at some point, what's the world going to be like? What do you expect they will be doing? Because if you think about it, our parents probably didn't expect what we would be doing. I mean, the idea of being a professional podcaster, that was just like, what's a podcast? When I was your kid's age. Okay, my I might be a little bit unusual, but Gary, what's your job like cloud practitioner or some made up word? Yeah, we'll go with that, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Again, that wouldn't have been a concept when you were in nappies. Unless
3: they think I was working for the Met office or something, nay.
0: Yeah, exactly. So what do you imagine your kids will be doing when they're about your age and having their own
1: kids? If you go back to when I was my kid's age, the idea of home dial up internet was not a thing. It is a huge amount of advancement that has occurred. Obviously, phalem trigger alert, (laughs) AI is the hot topic, and everyone thinks, oh, no one is going to be working anymore. And I don't know how that's going to work. We don't know where we are on the curve of its potential. Have we reached the top of it and it will peter out from here? or at the beginning of it. I personally have become a bit jaded with it recently. I feel like it's just an excuse for Elon Musk to pretend he didn't say things he did because AI has faked it or whatever. It's started to become monetized beyond anything that it can do. But there surely will have been significant multiple paradigm shifts. Because if we take that dial-up internet example, I then remember as a kid getting unlimited internet, because it used to be billed like a phone call. And then FreeServe came along and they said, no, no, no. If you dial this number, our access number is an 0800 number. So the complaint then was not the bill's too expensive. It was mum going, get off the phone, I want to use it. Then we got broadband and it was one meg and I was amazed. I thought it was the fastest thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was. Yeah, it was brilliant. Then we got ADSL. Wow. VDSL, wow. (laughs) Now I'm complaining that I don't have symmetric gigabit fiber. Where the hell are we going to be? Are things going to happen before you even think of them by the time my kids are my age?
0: Yeah, well, the new place that I'm going to move into soon, hopefully, is only going to have 150 down and 15 up. And I'm thinking I'm going to be slumming it until I can get that upgraded to gigabit. (laughs) Same as you, Chris. When I first got broadband, I had one megabit, and I thought, oh my, this is just amazing. Like, what? And then it got doubled to two. And then I remember the day I got 20. The day I got 20 was like this momentous day. Like I've got super fast internet now. I can download Ubuntu in an hour. (laughs) Yeah. And now 150 seems slow to me. It's I'm sure there's people out there listening just swearing at their headphones now or their car speakers because they stuck on like 30 or something.
3: Yeah, I mean, the pace of change of that stuff has been crazy over the last 10 years, right? Like, I remember working at a business in about 2010, 2011 or so, and we were running the entire office over a symmetric 10-megabit EFM connection. Mm. And that was like, wow, this is amazing compared to, like, the 4 or 5-megabit I had at home. And then, yeah, the last house I lived in, I had VDSL. It was, like, 70 down, 10 up. It was, you know, amazing. And now I'm sitting here with you know 500 down, 100 up, thinking oh, I could probably go for the symmetric gigabit, but I know I don't <laughs> need it. <laughs> the pace of innovation with stuff like that has been amazing, and then you see how far AI has come from Siri being introduced 15 years ago, or however long ago it was, to now you know GPT doing not large parts of people's jobs for them, but certainly giving people a head start and taking some of the pressure off. Like, if I'm writing a document now, probably will ask ChatGPT to generate something that I can begin with before actually going with it. But like you say, Chris, I think it all depends on if the pace of innovation is going to start slowing down. I mean, we've seen it in hardware, where Moore's Law is effectively dead at this point, where stuff isn't getting that much quicker, but it's using less energy performance isn't necessarily doubling however often it's supposed to double. So I can't see us being on this infinite pace of innovation forever. It's got to stop at some point, but then also maybe that's what my parents were saying 30 years ago.
2: It is a very common psychological effect for humans to say, okay, I've seen all of this change in my life. It's going to stop now. This is how it's going to be for the rest of my life. And it doesn't matter how much we watch things change. This is just an effect that affects pretty much everyone that we think that now is going to be roughly how things are going to be forever.
3: And maybe I am just reaching that point. I'm in my late 20s. I've got a kid now. I'm kind of settled into a career where I know what I'm doing. And like you say, am I just at the point where I think things aren't going to change anymore because I'm comfortable?
2: you always have been is what I'm saying. You've always thought that. Well, maybe you haven't thought that you're comfortable, but you've always thought that like, this is the best technology we're going to get. And you just (laughs) forgot about that conveniently, because our brains don't, we don't think about the issues and the logical leaps that we make in the future.
1: People are very opinionated in the wrong ways. While you were talking there, Dalton, I just looked up, when did the first iPhone come out? Because the smartphone era is the most recent real paradigm shift that I can remember in technology. And it was 2007, which is not that long ago. But I remember at the time, well, I don't remember at the time. Let's say I watched a documentary about the time. Nokia were basically presented with the prototype phone that was almost identical to the iPhone. And they just laughed the inventor out of the office. And the biggest thing they said was, Nobody will want a phone with that short amount of battery life because the most important thing they want to be able to do is make phone calls all the time. And then, of course, when the iPhone came out and they sold like hotcakes, Nokia was suddenly calling up the inventor and saying, Quick, quick, we want, we want to do this now. How do we do this? It's too slow. You've missed it. You're way behind. And those are the kind of things you can't imagine happening at the time. Even people. Supposedly in touch with the heartbeat of what is supposed to be the cutting edge, often don't see the thing that's coming, and it's really hard to predict what that's going to be. I think. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Hello Fresh.
0: With Hello Fresh, you get farm fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. No worries if you're not a pro in the kitchen. HelloFresh's foolproof recipes arrive pre-proportioned and easy to prepare in just a few steps. HelloFresh does more than just delicious dinners. Not only can you take your pick from 40 weekly recipes, you can choose from over 100 items to round out your order from snacks and easy lunches to desserts and pantry necessities. Everything arrives in one box and on a delivery day you choose. The variety of different meals looks really impressive, and I'm sure even I could follow the simple, clear instructions, and I have very little experience in the kitchen. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash linuxafterdark16 and use code linuxafterdark16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash linuxafterdark16 and code linuxafterdark16.
3: I guess we're also having this conversation, assuming that our kids will follow the same career trajectory that we did. I mean, having spent you know a while working in tech now, I'm not entirely sure I'd wish it on my kids. (laughs) There's always going to be jobs that are mostly never going to change, right? Like if my kid becomes a solicitor, probably going to be mostly the same as it is now. Mm, I don't know about that,
0: you know, because a lot of that is just busy work, contracts and stuff like that, which can
3: easily be done by AI. Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, I mean, okay, take service industry type jobs, for example. If he becomes someone who mows people's lawns, that's probably not going to change that much. Mm, I don't know. Bleep, bloop, bleep. Robot lawnmower. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is true. <laughs> See, I'm just being proven wrong at every point. Maybe I'm just the personification of Dalton's theory here, then, that actually I just assume things aren't going to change.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that. The last things to be automated will probably be dentists, doctors, that sort of thing. I think we're going to want a human in the loop there. But any sort of transportation of things, surely that's all going to be automated. It's a bit of a joke now in terms of self-driving cars and trucks, but that's just going to be solved
3: in the next 30 years, you would have thought. Well, I mean, it's already kind of solved with those freakish Amazon delivery robots that drive around the street, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs)
2: it's solved better by a bus and using one person to move a 50 instead of one to move one
3: or
0: just automate that bus and have no one to move 50
2: yeah that'll work too like the tram systems maybe it will go the other way and uh, maybe there will be a
1: rejection of certain things the thing i always wonder coming back to the smartphone thing i wonder if there's going to be a post-smartphone paradigm and what replaces that. They keep trying to find what it is. Google Glass, alternate reality, virtual reality headsets, the metaverse. People are still attached to the six-inch screened black brick, which is basically homogenized now. Smartphones don't look different anymore. They are really very similar whatever you choose and people have fallen into what that is hang on chris they fold now (laughs) well Hmm. possibly and no one's buying those i do wonder if that's going to be a slow evolution or if there is going to be another smash down moment because like i say the reason i keep coming back to specifically the iphone is i remember even people i knew that didn't have the money for it were desperately trying to find the money to get one and admittedly doing stupid things. One of the most popular things people did was drink a fake pint of beer with it. Like I remember that vividly using the accelerometer. They were like, look at this, look at this. They'd bring up a pint of beer and as you wobbled the phone, it would (laughs) wobble up and down on the screen and then they drink it and it would disappear with like
2: accuracy. Or gun app. Gun app was popular. Maybe in America.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or, um, Swiping uh, balls of uh, paper into a bin. That was another popular one with your finger. Swiping imaginary balls of paper into an imaginary bin with your finger on the touchscreen.
2: Pokemon Go.
1: (laughs) But you know, it's funny you bring up Apple here because smartphones did exist
0: before the iPhone. The iPhone just popularized the idea. And VR, AR headsets existed before Apple's new one that they're going to announce this year. Probably. Probably. But if they do announce that and it's good, and the cult of Apple continues, maybe, just maybe, they've
1: got the inertia to make it happen. I think you're right, Joe. I think it's about consolidating the elements that are already around you because iPhones didn't have a completely amazing out of nowhere appearance, but they got all the best bits right at the time. The fact the keyboard popped up and down, the fact it was a proper capacitive five point touchscreen that would work smoothly. The battery life was really poor, but people didn't care. They would charge it three times a day because of all the other stuff that they managed to cram in. So I think you're right. Paradigm shifts happen when someone looks around and goes, these are all the elements that other people have got half right. Here's how we pull it all together. And something changes. And it's like a tipping point if you want to use the Malcolm Gladwell example. There comes a, a, a weight of momentum where suddenly... And that's it. I can't remember another time where suddenly I looked around and everyone had something apart from the iPhone. Well, I can
0: remember Bluetooth headsets. I mean, if you watch Better Call Saul, he's got that Bluetooth headset and that shows that he's a wanker because <laughs> he's got one. And, and back in the, the pre-AirPod days, having wireless Bluetooth headset in your ear made you look like a wanker. Whereas now... In the last, what, 10 years
3: since AirPods have come out, it's actually now a status
0: symbol to walk around with them in.
3: Yeah. I mean, if I get on the tube now, there's very few people who aren't wearing some kind of wireless headphones. Whereas, like you say, it would have just been the rare person with their Nokia Bluetooth headset looking like a bell end who was too important to be there.
1: Like Bob Mortimer's train guy, they would literally be standing there going, Yeah, 5,000 units, mate, 5,000 units. Like, exactly. It's completely, yeah. completely different. Yeah.
2: I think another time that this happened before and no one saw it, and this is from Tom Scott, I'm completely ripping this off, Napster. Because before Napster came out, of course there were BBSs and Gopher and whatever to get your music, but once you got Napster, everyone could do it, everyone was using it, and everyone could get their music conveniently in whatever format was popular of the time. It was basically just MP3s and still is.
0: Yeah, and I remember reading a post, but I think it was one of the founders of Oink, which was one of the huge music torrent sites, where they said that this is going to be the future where there'll be super low cost to effectively download any MP3. And, and what they got wrong was that it was going to be peer-to-peer and that you would actually download the things. But what they were basically describing was Spotify, which is now ubiquitous that idea at least between spotify amazon and apple and a few other niche services
2: google's trying its hardest with youtube music come on yeah yeah true (laughs) they're trying real hard (laughs) for now
0: yeah and then you've got some that are trying to do it in super high quality and stuff but the idea of streaming music is just a standard thing now so let me bring it back to my original question the two of you with the young kids now What do you expect the world to be like when they're your age? What do you expect they'll be doing?
3: Or is that just impossible to answer? I think for me, it's absolutely impossible to answer. I mean, my kid is seven months old. So he's got 17 plus years until he enters the world of work. And if I think about the way the world was 17 years ago, we had no smartphones. We all had our five megabit DSL connections and whatever else we talked about. And that just feels like an absolute world away at this point. The job I have didn't exist. Heck, the company I'm working for didn't even exist. And yeah, now it's a really, really big you know, household name. So I think for me, it's just impossible
1: to tell what he might be doing. I think what tends to happen is there are real uncanny predictions that tend to happen. And you look back and go, wow, it was like a soothsayer looking into the future. Then other things are just wildly off. Like, I think of Back to the Future 2, where it predicted a 2015, where there were flying cars, which is still never happening. Like, personal flying vehicles is way, way off. And it's amazing. Or things like the Jetsons, the stuff that they think is going to happen. So I think some stuff won't be anywhere near as dramatic. And then there'll be other stuff where, like with the iPhone, you, you... You go back to myself as a small child, and they'll be like, you know this Amiga 500+, plus? you'll be able to carry something way, 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 way bigger just in your pocket, and it will last all day, and you won't have to plug it into the wall. I'd be like, get out of it, that's never happening.
2: Someday you're going to carry something in your pocket that can run the Amiga 5 Plus games. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I I think it's impossible to predict. And I think what tends to happen if you do too much is you become quickly made foolish when you get about 10 years ahead of what you tried to predict. I mean, look at the number of podcasts that make a prediction for the coming year and how few of those (laughs) end up being correct. Okay, this episode is sponsored by
0: TailScale. Go to TailScale.com. TailScale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, TailScale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some feedback then. We got a couple of emails from Bodhi developers. I assume independently, unless they colluded with each other to bombard us, but I suspect it was just a coincidence. The first one was Stefan Uram who said, it was nice to hear some words about our distro. As always, we listen to our users. I heard your conversation about the time set sliders in clock settings that you don't like. Yes, Moksha lacks some widgets like time settings entry with a spin button to change the value. Anyway, the challenge was accepted and I used the elementary widget with arrows for this purpose. I hope it looks more pro now. And then he sent a screenshot of it, which is uh, all looking very nice. And Gareth, who's also a Bodhi developer, got in touch.
1: Without wanting to give away how strongly I feel about this at the offset, one reason to keep the lightweight Linux ideology alive for me is getting messages like this. Greetings from Namibia. I recently installed Bodhi and removed Windows 7. Bodhi is a gem. Super fast and easy to learn. Already installed and played a bunch of Windows games. I use it for my day job too. No freezes or instability. Stuff gets done. That's the most recent quote of the many messages we get on our Discord and forums thanking the Bodhi devs and team for maintaining a distro that breathes new life into the only hardware they have access to. As well as this, Bodhi is used as a base for Escuela Linux, which many schools and educational institutions rely upon because they only have access to old hardware. Also, we have a responsibility to play a small part in the battle we face with hyper-consumerism and gluttonous technological consumption and all that. I feel it's incumbent upon the FOSS community to have a faction that maintains distros that can support old as the hills hardware that isn't quite retro enough to be cool, but has enough life left in it to at least slightly lessen the blow of socio-economic inequalities on the poorest in society. That takes a stand in providing an alternative to the buy new, throw away, pay forever consumers mentality that is killing the planet and our humanity. Bit strong, but probably true. I don't mean any offense to people that see no need for old hardware to be catered for by the FOSS community, but have you seen the state of the world?
2: So, first of all, thank both of you for getting in touch. And I do really appreciate that the Bodhi devs listened and did make a change to the distribution in response to that feedback. That is really good community engagement
0: yeah feature requests via podcast the way all (laughs) open source development should be done
2: (laughs) and to Gareth's point I
1: do want to echo that is a really important thing that you can often forget when I used to run my support business I used to get a fairly large amount of hardware passed through my hands that was too old in the way that we were talking about but we would have a program that would send it to Guinea and there was a learning and information center there, and we would get enough for a container load and then send it over. COVID completely ruined that. But before that, we would send, yeah, a lot of the stuff we would consider it to be useless or old or just too slow. But once it got into the hands of people there, it was honestly a game changer. We just take for granted so much that we're able to do. And I completely agree. And I think it's a really important point that Gareth made. So I second it.
0: Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I've
2: been Dalton. See you later.